0: To another chance to raise your gaze up into the skies and bask in the brilliance of some nerd culture as well as to try and take our time and look to the future topics that we discuss right here up on The Lookout. Lookout is the place to talk about Dragon Ball in a more relaxed setting as well as getting to know some of the more nuanced and lesser known facets of the fandom and those involved in it in varying degrees. With me once again is my trusty fellow Havarok, Hello,
1: I am the guy without the voice acting talent in that podcast. Also
0: joining us today is another voice actor, as our guest is quite possibly one of the coolest Dragon Team members going, as well as a suave straw hat chef, and even had a brief spell as an ace attorney. Well, we have no objection to that. It can only be Eric Vale. Hello, Eric.
2: Hello. Thanks for having me.
0: That's absolutely not a problem, mate. How's everything been lately in this very uncertain time? Have you been able to like keep up with the voice acting roles currently in lockdown?
2: Yes, yeah. uh, We, uh, as far as uh, voicing anime goes, actually voicing everything, um, right at the beginning of the lockdown, I've always had a setup at my home uh, to do a little bit of work, but I've never had to set up at my house to uh, facilitate uh, full studio style production. So back in March, right when... um, I guess the world exploded. Uh, was about the time that uh, I talked with a very trusted. Actually, Ian Sinclair and I uh, had a had an online meeting with a trusted audio engineer buddy of ours, and he pointed us in the right direction of how to set everything up. We set everything up, and now I have a studio in my office. So. I get in there a few times a week and do all of my anime sessions for all of the shows that I'm working on right now. And it's a little bit of a beating because uh, I have all of the stuff here. So I am um, I'm engineering my whole session as well as acting in the session. And um, I wouldn't necessarily say self-directing, but the director has to trust me to uh, understand that I'm uh, fitting all the, all the details, like fitting the flaps and making sure everything's totally correct with what we're doing. So, uh, it's, it's rough, but man, we're, we're making it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We've been talking to some of your fellow colleagues at Funimation and we've certainly heard that suddenly instead of just rocking into the studio, just like running your mouth off and then going home again with a paycheck, it's basically you're having to like do multiple roles at once. So I think I've seen various screenshots on various types of social media about like, oh, this is just one monitor with like eight different programs going on at the same time. And I'm imagining, oh, my giddy-on, is very scary if one of those programs crash.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why, you know, we it's it's okay. We um at least I run backup all the time. So, um and there's multiple ways to connect. So, uh I I split everything into multiple screens on my desktop um and depending on the show, I have two places in my office set up to record i do a lot of the anime at my desk because that gives me the most room to do everything i need to do and then some of it goes into the corner where it's a little uh different kind of sound and uh (laughs) it's a whole lot harder than like you say just hey i'm going to show up to the studio bs for a few minutes and then hit the bricks.
0: Yeah, of course. No, but it's it's been very great to see the actual industry adapt so quickly. And this is just like one facet. So we're, we've only just gotten started with you, Eric. So let's move on to the next session. With that, let's get started. All right. So. Eric, I remember the first time that we actually met. It was in 2014, and it was at a Rockin' University convention called UBCon in Buffalo, New
2: York. That's right.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, unfortunately, my myself and my colleague, Scott, um, who voiced Trunks in DBZA, were very, very excited to actually see you along there as well. We basically had uh, a really unfortunate situation with United, meaning that our colleague Nick wasn't able to join us, so we were kind of not sure what to do. And bless the cotton socks of Scott, he was incredibly nervous to meet you, but I remember just... Not worrying at all, and my my suspicions were confirmed by you. Were just being absolutely really accommodating, and within seven seconds of Scott saying hello to you, you invited us out to drinks later that day.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's right. We went out to uh, uh, um, it was new at the time at this place called Brick House. Yeah, I remember that.
0: Yeah, yeah, and uh, we uh, we had our first taste of zombies there. Oh yeah. Surprisingly good drink, because I I actually, truth be told, I'd only just started drinking about like, a few months prior to that, so I was relatively new because my now wife got me into drinking PIMS. It just shows how middle class I am already. (laughs) But essentially, I I went from that to that, and it was like one of those first instances, as soon as that touched my lips, yeah, I know where that's going. Okay, all right. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, we felt the effect of that for the rest of the evening, but I know that you had to go off to prepare for your 18-plus panel. And uh, we've been doing 18 plus panels for a very long time. Uh, But when Scott and I, because we didn't want to make a fuss, we just we tucked ourselves into the back of the auditorium. And the angle that you took was very real. So it was more like, okay, you're all over 18. Let's just talk. Let's just have a conversation, something that we can just be a bit more grown up about. So. Going into those types of panels, which we really absolutely dig, and we actually, when we did our one the next night, we actually took um, inspiration from yours. So what made you decide to actually take a different stance with that type of panel?
2: So I would get bored going to these panels where it was, like you said, it was like, make your make your character say the cuss words. Or, uh, you know, a lot of it came down to weirdly personal questions like people... Uh, people asking me about my sex life and and, and stuff like that and, at, and at, at some point answering, well not even answering those questions but trying to circumvent those questions into something that was entertaining for the audience turned into a whole different type of 18 plus panel where I was much more interested in talking about things that were a little more real but also regaling things that were a little more absurd uh, because the life of professional actor is anything but normal. So I found that I had a whole lot to offer in the world of risque stories that really had nothing to do with, you know, having, you know, trunks drop F-bombs and stuff like that.
0: That, That's what I find a really good answer to that, because a lot of the time people, yeah, because at that time, the the formula for a typical 18-plus panel is really sort of like... Yeah, it's been done already. And nowadays, I think people just really want to have just a bit of realness to it. And incidentally, we then did a 21 plus panel, which was uh, taking place in a movie theater. And the difference between that is, is that people have gotten over the novelty of like, yeah, man, we're 18, we can go to these panels. So they're a couple of years older. They can actually bring a drink in so they can have a nice cocktail. They can have an old fashioned and just watch people just like being real uh, in a movie theater. So that's always great to see just a more mature kind of like, Cool. We're actually getting a different insight into all of these different things, which is really refreshing. And we really did take a lot of good inspiration from what you were doing at the time.
2: Oh, I'm glad I could help.
0: I think a lot of people in the comments would be absolutely shock horror that I wouldn't even, like, talk about even in passing, which, of course, we've got to dabble, of course, in the magic of One Piece with your role as Sanji. So, I mean, quite frankly, it's like you, you going into this in around about 2007, right? So this was a very long time ago. But how were you able to, you know, compare to the might and majesty that was David Moo from the 4Kids dub those were big shoes to fill. So, talk us about how you managed to get the role and how you were able to like get used to it and acclimatize.
2: I, I approached it the way I approach any role, which is uh, I in anime. It's different. Different media requires different approaches, you know. So, if I'm working on a on a long term project, if I'm working on a play, obviously you have a rehearsal process. Uh, where you get to study the character, so on and so forth. It takes a while, uh, film similar, but a little different, uh, in anime, however, you get almost no preparation time. Almost a hundred percent of your preparation is done on your first day of being cast. And that's why you got to lean on the director a lot. So, um, I don't, uh, you know, I take my job as an actor very seriously, but I don't do a whole lot of research into the fandom of a lot of this stuff. So to be completely honest, I didn't know how uh, maligned the voice of Sanji in the four kids dub was when I got cast in the role. It wasn't until afterwards that I had heard, uh, all of the vitriol that people spit out about it. So I was I was brought into the studio. I actually auditioned uh, for Zorro um, because I I figured that would be the best suited for my tone, uh, knowing very little about the show or the characters. Uh, Zorro was what I threw my hat in the ring on. And uh, Chris Sabat, he laid down his audition for, for Sanji. And then whatever happened in the casting process, they switched us. And we settled into those roles, I think, pretty well. So at the beginning, it was, um, I remember Mike McFarland and I working on what the voice of Sanji would sound like, and uh, I had shown up to the studio not very professionally one day. I, uh, I basically, I think it was my first day working on trunks, and I ran into the studio. Uh, maybe I was a little late or something, but I definitely didn't warm up, so. Uh, the uh you know like you can hear some gravel in my voice right now I haven't warmed up today because um I, I don't have any work today today's actually my day off I have an interview with you guys and then I get to uh, put my house back together and we really appreciate your time of course oh hey, hey it's my pleasure man but uh so I'm not warming up today but usually I do usually it's uh it's a big process of, you know, getting my my voice lubricated, putting down a lot of water, some tea, uh, some hot tea, making sure that it opens it up a little bit, some singing, some vocal exercises, all the way before I get to the studio. I didn't do it that day, and so I came in sounding like I'd just woken up. And Mike McFarland, who's directing me into the role, was like, "That's that's the voice right there, Eric. You need to." Sanji's normal speaking tone is going to be your I just wake woke up voice, which is kind of where it is right now. So it sort of drops back here. And this is what I sound like when I wake up in the morning. And we we settled on that and moved forward. And and then it was that only after that that people were like, uh, I think I think there were studio people who were like noticing that the four kids that uh, was being trashed on the, son- on the Sanji voice, and then brought it to my attention. And then uh, I, you know, I didn't. I just, I just kept going forward with my role. In retrospect, that's probably for the
0: best because I think even if you like ingratiated yourself too much with David Mu's portrayal, I think that might have affected it because who knows? Because I think the best way to describe that. Well, hey, it basically just sounds like a very kind of like Macho Man Rocky Balboa type thing. It's like, "Well, hey there, baby, how you doing?" <laughs> it's, uh, it's probably best that you weren't subjected to that prior to getting that role because I'm now I'm pretty sure now everybody like loves the straw hat cast. And I don't blame you for not doing that much research because there's a lot of one piece to get through. So I think you you got the basic understanding and yeah, that, that must've been pretty daunting and I bet it even is now with like 900 episodes, right?
2: Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's a lot easier now because now I just have to, you know, uh, I just have to show up and act Uh, and I'm, and I'm deep enough into it that I don't have to like, uh, with anime, especially the long-running series, if you're fortunate enough to have a character that's on there, you know, most of or or all the time, uh, you start to see the matrix, so to speak, where you understand what's going on, even if you don't have all of the details for the episode.
0: No, that's that's good. It means that you've really ingratiated yourself with that character, and it means that you know them. You, you, it just comes to you naturally, of course. So we go from one character, and then of course we gotta like talk about for my hero academia so you play a lot of heroes but has it been quite fun to play a more villainous character
2: oh yeah way fun you know the villains are more interesting and this is what i've always said like as far as pop culture in general and 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 just fiction in general it's it's very uh you usually have a hero who's a hero you know what I mean? Like uh, I, I always go back to Star Wars, you know, um, in Star Wars, you have Luke Skywalker, right? Luke Skywalker, he's a hero the whole time. He's never, he's never dark. He's never evil. He's never mad. He, 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 you know what? He's just the hero. And then you've got Darth Vader, who's the bad guy. But the thing about bad guys that make it interesting is that to be an effective bad guy, they're actually having to suppress the good instincts in their body you know or in their soul by the nature of it the bad guys are more interesting for me to play because i feel coming out of the gate there's a little bit more to to play with a little bit more to work with
1: i have another question about one one of your roles you know but because in 2012 i believe uh, you did a voice in a little thing called mass effect paragon lost do you remember anything about about this role you played, Essex? I believe.
2: Yes, yes, yes. I remember. I remember that. Yeah, and because because uh, that was the, f- if I remember correctly, that may have been like the first. Dipping their toes, uh, Funimation's first dipping their toes into bringing in LA actors to work on some anime because Freddie Prinze Jr. That's who it was. He he had a role in the video game, was it? And so they wanted him to reprise the role in the anime. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember much about it. My I remember recording. So I had one day in the studio, and that one day was probably less than two hours. So I had. I, I'm surprised I remember it at all. <laughs> you know, that's the thing about anime. You, it's a deadline based business. You've got to get this stuff done and out. So there's not a lot of time to, uh, like you said, what we were talking about before, there's not a lot of time to research. There's not a lot of time to really lay everything out. You, you have to just jump in there, get it done to the best of your ability so that they can get it out.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. L- like, like it's understandable seeing how, you know, how many roles you played. I was just curious because, like, I, I'm i the fan of a franchise and I was curious how much, like, it's stuck. Thanks. Yeah, it was fun.
2: I remember it being fun.
0: Before we move on to the main topic, of course, yeah, know, with this yeah, Dragon ball theme podcast, I still remember to this day, I think one of the roles I've enjoyed the most from you was the fact of uh, Axis Palace Italia. Oh. I mean, the fact <laughs> is, though, you play America and Canada, and I just love the polar bears who so just go like, who are you? I'm Canada. <laughs> just, those are very short episodes. It's like, I imagine probably you either record multiple, ver- uh, multiple episodes at one time, or it's just like, bam, 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 tack it on at the end of another session or something like that. But it must've actually been really fun to like, just play these two countries. So basically you could say Eric Vale conquers the entirety of North America.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, 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 had a, I had a blast playing it. It was, it, America uh, and and Canada. There's some of the most fun voice acting that I've done. There's a few roles that stand out to me as the time when I have had the most fun in the booth, and that would be Hitalia. Desert Punk was another one, and uh, Shigaraki in in My Hero is another one too. Not to say that the other ones aren't fun, but those those rise to the top. And a lot of <laughs> a lot of the thing about America was when I auditioned for the role, uh, I, you know, they were trying to cast all of these different roles with all these different dialects. And I came in and if I remember correctly, the, the director said to me at the time, I, I was like, I don't know what to audition for. I don't, I, I was like, I can do, a, I can do a, a French dialect because I had, Trained for that back uh, in college in a play, and that kind of just sort of stuck in my head. And then I can do, you know, serviceable British dialect, you know, for, for some things, but they didn't, they wanted it to be as authentic as possible. So he's like, Well, why don't you just audition for America? He's like, That's what you were like anyway. I was like, Well, what do you mean by that? And he's like, He's like, The character is like you. He goes, Just be and sort of, a an elevated version of yourself. I was like, all right, I'll give it a shot. And I laid down the audition for America. And I was in a couple of days later recording America and Canada. And so, yeah, that's the thing about America. That character is surprisingly close to me as a person. So it was a lot of fun to play, but I really didn't know that I even had the role until we were done with season one, because they cast, Todd, Havercorn as, as Italy, and they cast me as America and Canada. And those were the grounding roles that they were going to build the rest of the cast around. So I would be recording all these episodes for season one while not knowing if I was going to have that role come a few weeks. And uh, then when we, they cast all of the other roles around Todd and I, and then uh, at the end of it, they were like, yeah, it works. You get to keep the role. So that was really nice.
0: Hey, that's great. That's that's really cool. So, yeah, it's been really good to kind of like talk about the different insights in some of your other main roles. But okay, we've now got to talk about the absolute big one. So let's head over to the main topic. All right. Okay. Trunks. Quite clearly, one of your earliest roles, if not one of your first major roles. And I've been doing some research, basically, and I think before Trunks, I'm all right in thinking that you used to deliver pizza,
2: right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not before Trunks, during.
0: Just to kind of bring the two together, what might Trunks' favourite pizza topping be?
2: Based on what I know, Trunks' favourite pizza top. I I don't know why, but I get the feeling he would be a vegetarian pizza lover. You know, I don't, I I don't exactly know why. It seems, it seems to me that would be the healthier option in pizza. So that would probably be what he would choose.
1: Veggie Supreme, that would be his father.
0: (laughs) Uh, Oh, 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 that's the connection. I see what you did there. (laughs) have Nice. Nice nice, but so around around that same time, um uh, now we we have heard over the years that basically Funimation at the beginning was very much like ad hoc, yeah, very kind of bare bones, but despite that, they got stuff done when they moved everything in house, so I mean say so we, we we can talk about that that's been done quite a few times, but honestly, did you have? any idea that the moment that you make your debut in dragon ball z that it would arguably herald one of the best debuts in the show if not arguably in the entirety of anime because there's this guy he comes in hack and slashes the main enemy in two seconds i mean when you realize that what were your thoughts i uh, i don't
2: I don't even know if I have still reconciled that in my head, to be honest with you. I mean, I uh, uh, Trunks was the first role that I had, and uh, Trunks showing up and killing Frieza was my first day of recording ever in voiceover, period. And so uh, I didn't know what the hell i was doing you know or or what the hell was going to happen as far as i was i mean at the time i was you know in my i was in my mid-20s i was an actor i'd been uh acting professionally with an agent uh for a couple of years at that point but you know not booking much just little commercial gigs here some extra jobs there but I've been studying acting my whole life. Went to college for it. I was in college at the time, actually. Um, like the, the the timing of it was interesting because I'm a terrible student. I've been I've been terrible at school my whole life. Uh, this, I, I can the things that I'm good at, I'm good at. So I would make A's in my theater classes. I would make A's in my English classes and fail most everything else, except geology for some reason failing Spanish repeatedly. And I got a letter saying I I was on academic suspension. And uh, that was right about the time I was getting the audition for Trunks. But it was it was ad hoc. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. But I walked in and boom, here we go. You're going to kill this major villain. And that was it. And then they would bring me back the next week and the next week. And we had all this work to do. And all of a sudden I'm like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm a bona fide professional actor. I'm making, I'm making a living doing this. Um, you know, at the time it's like, yes, I was continuing to deliver pizzas. And then on the night that the trunks premiere happened, I believe is when it was, uh, I, was delivering pizzas in Denton, Texas, college town that I was living in at the time. And I delivered a pizza to the door of these guys who were watching Trunks' premiere when he shows up and kills Frieza. I was like, I guess it's Saturday night. And I, w- I walk in, they're freaking out. I hear my voice coming from their house. It was very unnerving. And they paid for their pizza and rushed me off their doorstep so they could get back to watching Trunks kick ass on TV and they were all confused. Oh my God, who is this guy? What's going on? And at that point, I'm like, I think I need to stop delivering pizzas. Unfortunately, the original,
0: um, cut of the, of Dragon of Dragon Ball Z in America had the Bruce Falconer soundtrack, but have you heard the original like theme for Trunks battle power unlimited? It's quite an iconic, but now actually quite controversial track. But at the same time, it's very 1991. Have you ever had a chance to listen to it?
2: I don't know that I actually
0: have. It's got a really funny story to it. I'll give you the cliff notes version, but basically, Kenji Yamamoto, one of the major composers, uh, along with Shunsuke Kikuchi of Dragon Ball Z, he basically came up with this theme for Trunks' battle power unlimited, and it basically plays throughout the entire time where Freezer's going like, "Oh yes, little monkey boy, you think you can go Super Saiyan? I'm very powerful too," and then hack and slash, boom, plays that thing hardcore to the extreme. But it turns out that it. It was actually lifted from three different tracks from a German uh, electronica band called Propaganda. And it all has this um, theme to it. But you can hear that 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 whole um, story with you know people being absolutely blown away while you were delivering pizzas. I mean, and making that decision to go like, right, in time, obviously, as the voice would develop. I mean, did you feel like it naturally developed as you gained more time in the booth?
2: That, like, once you start voicing a lot, there's a lot of things that you learn along the way that you would have never considered if you had never voiced a character in a booth before, you know? Um, As far as the character goes, I don't... Anime is a different beast. It's not up to me to... uh, it's not up to me to make decisions about the character. The decisions about the character have been made for me. So it's up to me to facilitate the vision of that character as best I can to a certain audience. And in order to do that, sometimes I I feel like leaning on the tone of the Japanese track or sometimes I try to shift away from it because it feels like to me... Uh, the audiences that I'm playing to really want the voice to match the animation that I'm seeing. And uh, so that's what I try to do as best I can. As far as the voice changing over time, <clears throat> I was reading something about this recently. Somebody had posted that, you know, my voice has uh, gotten worse as Trunks over the years or gotten better as Trunks over the years, depending on who you're talking to. And somebody put out some video where they compared my voice from original DBZ to super and they're like it changed you know how the hell could he do this that's not how the hell could he do that that's 20 years of getting older you know that's that's called life and age and with life and experience comes changes and one of those changes is my voice is just totally different now than it was a long time ago. And everyone's like, oh, it's because you screamed yourself to death. No, it's it's just because I'm middle aged. You know, I'm, I'm 46 years old. So things are different now. Um, so that's kind of the track that I follow. I just try to m- move with the character as best I can. And I and I'm forced to do it from within the vessel of my body.
0: Well, I wouldn't worry about that at all, because the way that the voice is adapted and you've gained through experience, that's not anything to be ashamed about at all, because there has been a gap between Dragon Ball Z, that moment when Trunks destroys Imperfect Cell in the future, and basically has saved the future. There's at least about nearly 20 years between that and when we see him first against Goku Black. So, in a way, that aging is completely and entirely justified. And also... I think I think honestly with Trunks after dealing with Goku Black, dealing with all of that, I don't blame him for feeling a bit more like, you know, gritty and a bit weary especially because there's practically nothing left and he thought, "Well, I'd already saved the future. Now I got to do it again and it's even harder." So, don't worry. I I it, what you would be what you did was absolutely valid and it makes total sense. And incidentally, this leads on to um are something I really am curious to answer. Because um we on my channel, Have Rock and I, we basically, um we have our own thoughts about the ending of your arc, the Goku Black arc or the Future Drunk arc depends on how it goes. We're not asking any like in-depth questions, but it's all to do with your impressions when you first, when you got the chance to read the scripts for episodes 66 and 67.
2: I noticed that it. I mean, I thought it was strange that it's like, oh, now uh, uh, Trunks, you and Mai are going to go live in a timeline with another Trunks and another Mai, and uh, have fun. Okay, see ya. You know, it seemed short and weird, but at this point, uh, everything comes back in Dragon Ball. You know, everything comes back. This it's not a it's not a property that anybody wants to see go away. It's arguably more popular now than it ever has been. And it keeps growing in popularity. I, my thought at the time was they're setting up something else. That's what I thought. I try not to read too much into these things because, you know, I'm a creative person myself. I have all my own creative endeavors. And I, I as an actor, I feel like I have to tune those creative ideas down when i'm dealing with something because my job as an actor is not to my job as an actor is to bring creativity to the role not the story and um so i try to not think about it too much to be honest
0: well actually that's that's actually a really pragmatic answer so i do respect that answer entirely yeah i mean of course you know we get very enthused by it and i think we always we wanted to see trunks get the win and for that to happen in such a a disappointing way. We thought, I think it was more like we felt sorry for the character, but the way that you say it is absolutely true because, I, and we will get to some of your creative endeavors later on, because I do want to talk about that. I agree with your feelings in that, you know, you're here to convey a character. You weren't part of the writing team. So therefore you don't have that connection. Try not to overthink it because otherwise
2: it could compromise the performance, right? I don't know. It just seems like it's not my job. At the time, you know what I mean? Uh, so I try not to think about it too much past that. It's, you know, everybody's, everybody's got their job to do. And um, I tr- it's, it's hard in creative endeavors to let everyone sit in their jobs because everybody, everybody wants to do everything, you know? And uh, to some degree, everybody thinks they can do everything. So I, I just try to stay in my lane as much as I can. And that's, it's a ch- that's, that's one of the biggest challenges in acting.
0: I do like that because it just shows that you know what you can do and what you do to the best of your ability. So actually, that's actually a really good life lesson to in a way to just like just focus on what you're doing. Good is good enough. Don't overthink it too much. I like that. That, That's really good. And this actually leads on to because we were talking about how you think there's something else coming because, you know, there are theories because it does connect to potentially where trunks might go in the uh, video games, because I do loads of what ifs on my channel because I like to try and do some storytelling because I've been with the show for a very long time, about 20 years on and off. There's obviously the work I've done with Team Four Star. I know a lot about this kind of thing. It's quite clear. I've, I've signed myself up to that. This is going to be one of those things that I do until the day I die. Effectively, I've signed myself up for that. There's going to be something to do with that. But I do a, a story where... It concerns whether Trunks and my actually, instead of going with Whisk or Ian's whimsical way, so, oh, by the way, we can go to the future and you get to deal with those things. Have fun with that. And Trunks is like, no, I want to stay here. And it's like thinking about that time if he just chose to stay in the past and then have it linking up with the video games. So obviously we'll talk about the video games briefly because Trunks, as it's quite clear, he is the living mascot of the video games. And quite clearly, it obviously gives you a lot of work by having, you know, Trunks doing like loads of voice works in Dokkan Battle in you know, some of the mobile games in Xenobus. Uh, Do you take like, a different stance to this, or is it basically just the same, only with less worrying about mouth flaps?
2: You know, as far as the characterization goes, I, I, I approach it the same. As far as the work goes, it's very, very different. There's no context when you're working in some video games, you know, sometimes a video game is, is uh, set up so that you understand, so that it's like you're working on a show. You understand the motivation, you understand the scene, you understand the moment, you understand where it's going, where it's been and all of that. Um, on the first Xenoverse, uh, you know, and, But in, in some video games, like a lot of the Dragon Ball games, I'm only seeing my character's lines because of the way the scripts are consolidated when you're recording in the booth. So I trust the director to tell me exactly what's going on so I can deliver the right performance, but you've got to get through it pretty quickly. And so there's just a different mechanism to how you're working. And with the video games, like Xenoverse, the first one, I was just reading these trunks lines. We had no context. The director was constantly talking with people in Japan, trying to figure out what I was saying and what it meant and and how to say it in an effective way. It was very confusing, that first one. The, uh, since Since then, it's gotten a little bit better, but I'm still... You still have to sort of act through confusion in a lot of these video games, uh, just because of the nature of the way the script is structured, how quickly you've got to get through this stuff. You know, you've got to get through a lot more work in um in a video game session than you would in an in an anime session, generally speaking.
0: I remember an old documentary of Budokai 3 uh that was behind the booth or behind the screen as in like uh with it was a D- it was a dvd extra on the ps2 game so just getting that vague idea and just like just like seeing you know Sabbath doing all the direction and stuff like that basically me being like about what like 17 or something like that getting an insight it's like wow this is really really good just a really big insight and uh yeah um we'll talk about briefly the favorite moments in the booth but i i think probably one of the biggest um memes to come from trunks recently is from fighters. And it's just one of the uh I don't know whether you're aware of this, but just one of his introduction lines of just trunks going, You need to be stopped. No. Oh no, oh wow. People love that line. That in, yeah. in itself is just that it's an innocuous line and it's something Trunks would totally say, but it's basically become uh one of his like uh catchphrases. That's just a little kind of salvo there at conventions, if you're like aware or if you get like anything like that. Oh we're on I want to just ask what's been some of the favorite times in the booth uh, with either with trunks or on your time in dragon ball.
2: I really enjoyed working on super um, because I ended up working. uh, The director is uh, Raleigh Pickens, who is uh, he's an engineer or has been an engineer now, now director and a very good friend of mine. He actually lives like, three streets away from me. It was nice to go into the booth and work with him. He knows how I work. We know each other very, very well. And so working with him was a lot of fun, very collaborative. I felt like we could move fluidly. And uh, and of course, just enjoyable being able to work on something really, really big with a good friend of yours. And and then, of course, I'll just tell you what, what, one of my favorite moments in the booth ever, one of my favorite moments in the Dragon Ball series ever, was a couple of years ago when we were recording uh, Super, and it was just Raleigh and myself in the studio, and I got to the line that is making a comeback right now, which is the um, when Trunks... Goku and Vegeta go into the future where Goku Black is destroying everything and the guys pop out with their guns and I have to tell them, you know, hold your fire, this man isn't black, right? And and that was the way the line was written and the way that I work in the booth is I read my first takes cold. I don't read ahead in the lines. I'd never seen that line before. We recorded it. And the second the line came out of my mouth, my jaw hit the floor. Raleigh's jaw hit the floor. And we stopped for a minute. We're like, no, like there's no way they couldn't have not thought about that. Well, me, I I had a i i I we had to have a conversation about it you know and he's like we need to change the line and i'm like no we're not changing this line this is the way the line was written it's the way that it's meant because this is our chance to do something important inside of the parameters we have in anime and when we were recording this um it two years ago three years ago i forget but um we were recording it. It was right about the time uh, another Black Lives Matter protest because of another Black man who was murdered by police were dying. Those, 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 uh, those protests at the time were fading away because at that time, it wasn't taken as seriously as it is now. And Raleigh and I both agree that it's a very profoundly important topic. And given the time that we were recording this, and the time that it was actually gonna be released, by the time it came out, the Black Lives Matter protests at that time, we knew would have faded away because that was the pattern that we had been seeing. And we're like, this is gonna be something that A, will be obviously funny because it's taken out of context, but also a socially aware comment that means something to people. And it felt important because it would bring back some awareness to a subject that's really important to us, so we kept it in as written, and that's exactly what happened when it came out. Everyone was like, "Whoa!" and then they had discussions about it, and it felt important. And now, given the good movement that's happening now with Black Lives Matter, it's it's come back again, and uh, and people people are weird because there's a whole lot of people thinking, "Oh, this comment didn't age well," and it's like. No, we were having Black Lives Matter protests years ago as well. You know, it's it's the same thing. That's part of the problem is that these things don't change and we need to be part of the change. And it was this little thing that I felt I could do to help that.
0: It definitely like had that hammer blow effect, I think, that you were going for. And again, it was out of pure happenstance. So it was just like purely by chance, and you seized the moment. So okay, no, I I absolutely see you there. So that's actually it, that's it's all very well and good in the favorite moment. To say, oh, this is just a funny line. But you're now just thinking, well, wait a minute, this is something to seize. So that's a really different answer. I like that. Nice.
1: And it's really interesting to know the context behind this because, like, like I won't lie, it was. <laughs> it was curious to a lot of people, like, what was the thought process about you guys letting this go through, right? A lot of the audiences had the, feel, the, the very similar feeling to, uh, you know, to, to, to you guys. Wait, uh, w- 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 with the writers, right? So we ha- we asked the audiences who, have, who had very similar feelings after watching it. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, brother, we say, absolutely. You've dabbled in short films in your time, uh, but it all culminated uh, to the idea of a feature film. And it's all to do with on a plane and the movie is called chariot and for those of you who don't know what it is i'll just give you the brief some uh synopsis from imdb seven strangers find themselves unwitting participants in a u.s government evacuation program gone horribly wrong and those three words gone horribly wrong i'm thinking okay i'm sold so th- <laughs> i saw the trailer and the trailer's available on youtube and it it's actually really good and seeing ian's smug face in there it's absolutely priceless and obviously making quips it just seems it, it it looks like it's it looks like a lot of fun despite i mean yeah it's a it's quite a very harrowing scenario but at the same time it looks like okay this looks like a good time so tell me uh, you, you were the writer and producer on it at the very least so how did you make that jump to a
2: feature length piece Movies in general are are my first love, always, always have been, you know, that's why I started acting was because of my love of movies. I grew up in a small town in Texas and there wasn't much to do except go to the movies. So that's what I did. And it's what I always wanted to do. And I, yeah, I've, I've made some short films and that feature film I've written a lot of feature films. I've sold some hard, you know, none of them have ever been made. But um, uh, what ended up happening is a a friend of mine who's a television director here in Dallas, um, there's a studio, and and he's the one who's worked with me on all my short films. He cast me in his first feature film back in the 90s called Hall of Mirrors. And uh, that's where we got to become very, very good friends. We're still, to this day, very, very close friends. Talked to him just a couple days ago. And um, he was working on this you know at his studio where he he works on a lot of television programs for reels network uh, he directs shows like murder made me famous and stuff like that and he wanted to do a narrative he wanted to do an actual feature film because just to change it up so he, he called me up one day and he goes hey eric they just parked a 727 fuselage on the studio lot and it's gonna be here for a year. So if you want to make a movie that takes place entirely inside of a plane, write it and we'll shoot it. It's like oh okay. So I spent six months writing the screenplay. And um and then once the screenplay was done, we Raised some money on Indiegogo. We raised some money through independent investors and then we shot the movie. And it was uh, uh, one of the best creative experiences of my life. I, I, I treasured it. Uh, the process after the film was made was nothing short of a nightmare. The film was stolen from us by a a distribution company that was not reputable they stole 14 films including one of my uh, chariot as well uh, from 14 different filmmakers and then tried to sell them all take the money and run and that's exactly what they did it took me years of fighting them, tracking them down, hunting them down with a lawyer until we found the one responsible party. And we just, we went all the way up to everything except suing him to get our investors money back. So I've never made a dime on the movie. And, uh, and I have to go onto YouTube periodically and take down the pirated version that Every time I find a pirated version of my movie on YouTube, uh, it's racked up millions of views, millions. And I have never been paid uh, uh, one dime for that thing. So it was really disheartening experience, ultimately, uh, to to put so much passion and time and effort and money into something and then just get kicked in the teeth when it was over by bad people. And that's why since then I've, I've, I've like, I'm, I don't know that making movies independently is for me. I don't have, I I don't know if I have it in me to go through that over and over and over again. But, uh, I do know the director posted, uh, chariots, uh, director's cut. Actually, we added a couple scenes back into the film, um, on Vimeo for free. So you can go on Vimeo and watch the, a uh, licensed movie for free, uh, right now. Um, and, um, it is a great film. I, I really, really enjoy it, particularly enjoy Ian Sinclair's performance because he said all he did was pretend to be me. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, that's that sounds like Ian.
0: Yeah, no, we yeah. We, ha- we had the delight of, like, spending some good time with Ian at an English convention last year, and he definitely has that enthusiasm for the role, and I can, I can totally imagine it. And, again, we can easily... Uh, include a link to the Vimeo version the director's cut version in the show notes we well, can absolutely do that for you because i think it deserves to be seen and it's it's really good when you you set your heart on something and you really just go for it and in of itself the trailer the trailer has already got me hooked and i'm like you know this should really be on Netflix cuz quite frankly this would do pretty well
2: well you know i i may i may go ahead and do something like that cuz at this point what have we got to lose you know um you know but I, I i you know it it was it was a str- it was a struggle getting that thing done man it that's no mean feat in of itself i mean that how
0: many people can say they've made a feature length film and you know make it look like something that it looks really polished and it is one of those types of situations
1: that that gone horribly wrong the worst case scenario will become a cult classic you know and people will demand you to do a sequel oh my god yeah i Uh, I want to ask you, what kind of writer are you? Are you a meticulous planner
2: or are you writing on the fly? I'm working on this story right now. I've been working on it for about two years. And then over the past two weeks, for whatever reason, all the story pieces fell into place. And when that happens, that's usually when I start writing. So I take, you know, a little time every day and sit down and plan the whole thing out. And uh, yesterday I have the entire introduction and how that's supposed to work and the entire conclusion and how that plays out. And once I have those two things, then I can start writing.
1: I understand the pain completely. Like um, when we and Lawrence write stuff for the channel, Lawrence is more more of an in the moment writing guy, and like I make plans for like six months in advance <laughs> often. But when it comes to that the the point, like you know, I I have the, I have that problem of uh, you know I I have something planned and I uh, okay that's that would be great, but I need to get to that point and I. And I have blog because, yeah, I have that great ending, but I need to write the middle. <laughs> right, yeah, the middle is, uh,
2: that's the fun part.
0: For those of you who want to give Chariot a look, I'll be sure to find the Vimeo link and uh, include it in the show notes. So it just allows more people to actually see it and, again, gain a bit of a following, and hopefully next time when conventions are able to get the go-ahead again, you can get some more loving for Chariot.
1: Yeah, thank you, man. That would be great. And all those sequel demands. Yeah,
0: so basically just Chariot to go by the alien thing, call it Chariots. Uh, yeah. <laughs> ah! Yeah. But yeah, no, it all, all that remains for me to say is thank you so much, Eric, for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure, man. This is the time of the podcast that if there are any types of social medias or anything you'd like to uh
2: plug and fire away twitter is eric vale instagram is eric vale rocks and uh so you can find me there Uh, if you're on twitter go check out uh, my comedy troupe folding chairs it's at folding c the letter c and uh we have we're doing our best to work on comedy videos right now we usually are a sketch A sketch comedy troupe that performs at venues around town, but we can't do that now. So we're pumping out uh, videos that we're shooting on our own at home. In fact, this afternoon, we're shooting two more here at my house, just my wife and I, and uh, we'll have another one dropped tomorrow. So you can find that all on my social media as well
0: brilliant that's great so again thanks for joining us eric and really kind of like having this nice little journey and just like you're really getting to know different aspects of all the creative stuff that you do
2: oh thanks buddy thanks for having me my pleasure thank you
0: and thank you all so much for listening out there if you have been enjoying the podcast do rate and review on your respective platforms it really does help the podcast out tremendously and if you'd like to become a caretaker of the lookout you can go to masterco.cc lookout for more information All that remains to be said is I hope you're all out there staying safe, staying well, and we shall hear from you next time. Ta-ra!